Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, A New Calling, and it is part of the New Church Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can check us out at our website at bccma.org, or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Okay, we're ending a sermon number 10 on the book of Acts, and we are going to end today by asking you the question, do you know the one thing you can do with your life that will matter a hundred years from now? The one thing that you could do with your life that will matter a hundred years from now? The answer is found in the behavior of Apostle Paul and others in the book of Acts, and it wasn't truly available until Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This, this series has been about old church versus new church. Old church, the church that existed from the book of Exodus to the end of the book of Malachi. New church that begins in the book of Acts. And today, Acts has 28 chapters, so today we're writing chapter 29, because Acts had no conclusion. So, old church versus new church, it's not bad church versus good church. In fact, 1 Timothy 1 and 8 says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. However, the older church that Moses and the prophets attended versus the new church, the one that Jesus revised in the, in the book of Acts, is kind of like comparing a 1984 Apple Macintosh with a 2019 Mac Pro. Remember the, remember the Macintosh? Remember that one? 1984? Had uh, uh, 512 kilobytes. Now, that's not even a megabyte, man. That's, that's a kilobyte. That's a kilobyte. Uh, your phone has what? What, Scott? Help me. Eight, gig, eight gigabytes. It's, yeah. I think mine has, I think I got the bigger one. I got, I got 16 gigabytes in my phone. So, and, and, but, but take a look at the, the, new, the new iMac Pro. See, so, so, so going, from, going from the old church to the new church, it's kind of like going from a, the original Mac to the iMac Pro. It's the power of God's grace and forgiveness and, and the fulfillment of all the rules, and not all the rules, but all the rituals, all the ceremonial rituals and all the clean laws have been wrapped up in Jesus Christ. What, a, what an amazing thing. And not only that, you've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. God has made the Holy Spirit available to you. I don't know why you wouldn't want to be a part of it, and I, I think most of you do. So, so what is the option of how one can optimally invest one's life? We're going to read the scripture in a moment. A comedian this week said about his faith, I don't proselytize because it would be less Jesus for me. <laughs> he said... He said, it's kind of like a buffet, you know, I don't want other people, too many people coming. Uh, well, I don't think Paul would have seen the humor in that. <laughs> His favorite experience of Jesus was trying to persuade other people to desire the kingdom of God and believe in Jesus. By the way, the word proselytize, I don't really like that word. It means to convert or attempt to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another. An example in the dictionary says the program did have a tremendous evangelical effect, 
proselytizing many. The, the word proselytize sounds aggressive, perhaps even illegal. <laughs> I like the word biblical terminology a lot better, and the biblical terminology is persuasion. Acts 18.4, every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogues trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts chapter 26, verse 28, Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? I believe it's a satanic strategy, by the way, to take a beautiful concept like persuasion and make it sound ugly and call it, call it proselytizing. Uh, you know, what was happening, all the dark forces are proselytizing like crazy in the world, by the way. They're all proselytizing, especially your young people and the, you, the youth are pro constantly proselytizing them. And so, but they don't use that term for that. They use it for Christians and religion. So that's really, that's why I guess I don't like the term. But, but people who live, as I hope you are on the track to, and I'm on the track to, I'm trying to live a gospel. I, wanna, I like Tim Keller's terminology, a gospel-saturated life. That's what, that's why, that's what, Scott meant when he took that Chinese student to his refrigerator and showed all the things that God had done in his life, because I know Scott, and I know Susan, and I know, along with many of you that are here today, you live gospel-saturated lives. The gospel is the most important thing in your life. And, and uh, amen. And that, that's, I hope that's true of me as well. It's when you're dedicated to bringing the good news and proselytize, it makes us sound like oppressive jerks instead of people who are saying we have the cure to cancer. From morning to evening, it says, Paul declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. So here we go. Paul is under arrest. He's been transported from Jerusalem to Rome. He's experienced a shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea off the island of Malta and been bitten by a venomous snake. But he was undeterred. He prayed and he ministered to the sick there on the island of Malta. And in verse 23 of chapter 28, we're going to pick up his life at a point that although he's a prisoner, he's been given extraordinary freedom. And he uses this freedom to meet with Jews in Rome to try to convince them of the reality of Jesus Christ. Because this was the most important thing in his life. And he had discovered the secret of engaging in an activity that would still matter in a hundred years. The Bible says in Acts chapter 28 verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. And trying to convince them about Jesus, in your minds at least, circle the words, the kingdom of God, and circle the words Jesus. Those are the two main topics of a person's life who wants to invest their life in what will be happening a hundred years from now. So he did that. Trying to convince them about Jesus from the law and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will ever be ever seeing but never perceiving. 
for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. You see, I just want to make this point. The gospel is good for people. The gospel of Jesus Christ heals people. It heals people's psyche. It heals people's soul. It heals people's ethics. It heals people's morals. It heals people's relationships. The gospel is a gospel for your ills. Amen? Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul knew that getting arrested, getting persecuted a hundred years from now wouldn't matter. But he knew that if he persuaded people to follow Jesus, that they would, they would be eternally connected with God and with the plan of God and the kingdom of God, not only for a hundred years, but forever. And that's why he engaged in this activity and it became the center of his life. So this describes the new calling on the lives of the members of the new church in this beautiful model called the New Covenant. We always love the new model, by the way, as I said, as I showed a minute ago with the computers. Our new calling is to be ambassadors for Christ is shown by Paul in three ways. Number one, it was a call to live a gospel-centered life, which means sharing the good news that Christ has come, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Number two, this, this new calling on your life, I call this message a new calling, this new calling is for you to live an other person-centered life, which means we're constantly building relationships and blessing others. Our circle of friends is constantly growing. And number three, it's an intention-centered life, which means that you are, have a clear purpose and you, you constantly are strategizing to show the kingdom and share Christ with other people. So those key words I want you to keep in mind as I proceed today, gospel, others, intentionality. It's a new call to a gospel-centered life. I want to tell you a couple of stories that are going to be intimidating to you, as they were to me anyway. And you may struggle to relate because they're extreme examples of going, of sharing the gospel in someone's life. But sometimes an extreme example is what we need. For instance, we talk about Jesus going to the cross and then we preach that we are to carry our cross. I can take that principle of carrying my cross to the most mundane activities of my life. And that's truly what it means to live a gospel-centered life. It's when the, when the message of the cross and the message of Christ filters down to the, even the most mundane uh, activities of your life. What, one of our uh, members, and I won't point them out or anything because I didn't ask their permission, but stepped into the aisle several weeks ago with tears in their eyes and said to me, I need to apologize to you. I said, what for? They said to me, I went, to, I went to take a seat a few weeks ago, or on previous Sunday, and a person was sitting in the seat that I normally sit in. And I went over to this visitor, this guest, and I said, you're sitting in my seat. And this person, tears in their eyes, said, Pastor, the Holy Spirit has convicted me. I was wrong to do that. 
So carrying the cross of Jesus and living a gospel-centered life filters down to the most basic and mundane activities like not telling a visitor they're sitting in your seat. <laughs> if this person is really humble and, and, and they have a, that person, by the way, has a record of humility and a record of serving the Lord, if that, that was just a bad day they were having. <laughs> and it could happen to any of us, right? But let me share a couple of more, uh, maybe uh, uh, more complicated examples or, or, or intense examples, a better word. Rick Warren shares in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, about his dad. His dad was a pastor of rural church, but his passion was planting churches overseas. And he would take groups of volunteers. He planted over 150 churches around the world. By the way, this should be a little lesson message to you parents. You want to raise kids who, 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 do, who do things in a certain way? You do things in a certain way. Think about that. Nobody ever, nobody ever talks about Rick Warren's father, Rick Warren, who's built, built the, uh, the great church of 25,000 people and wrote the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. People don't talk about the fact that his dad was a humble rural preacher who illustrated what it meant to live a gospel-centered life. And so he planted over 150 churches, and he was, when he was dying of cancer, he virtually had, was staying awake, I guess because of discomfort or pain or whatever, 24 hours a day, and talking, and, and dreamlike talking through this, through this time. And one day, the, all the family was around the bed, and he began to try to get out of bed. And he would, he would, as he would talk, they said he would relive all these church plants. He would relive all the church plants that he had done overseas. And so this one day, he starts trying to get out of bed, and, and, and they, they said, what are you doing? And he said, I've got to reach one more for Jesus. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. Rick Warren said over the next hour, he said over 100 times, I've got to reach one more for Jesus. That's a gospel-centered life. And I know that's an intimidating story because you probably haven't planted 150 churches and neither have I. Another story that I want to tell you about is a man that many of you have heard about and many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. John Bunyan was arrested and put in, uh, put in prison in Bedford, England, um, you know, 150, 200 years ago whenever he wrote the book that, you're, that he's known for. But uh, he, would, he, would, he was put in prison and he would preach in the courtyard. And all the prisoners would come and hear him preach. And he would preach so loud that people would gather in the gate, in the fence, around the prison. People from the community would come to hear John Bunyan preach the gospel. And, and the prison officials didn't like this. And they didn't like all these people coming. And they didn't like him preaching. And, and that's why they put him in the prison to start with, because of his preaching. And so they put him deep inside the prison where no one could hear him. And deep inside the prison, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest books ever written. And if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. That, that is no doubt spread the gospel to millions of people in this classic that for many years was a bestseller right behind the Bible. You see, when you live a gospel-centered life and you're, you're, and you're living your life with 100 years from now in view, you don't get so discouraged with the things of this life that go wrong. You don't get so thrown off by the myriad of things that can go wrong with our physical bodies, with our relationships, and with everything else. 
And I think of it many, many times. God, I must live my life for what I want to be a hundred years from now and what I want the world to be and what I want my friends' lives to be a hundred years from now. I must have the long view. Now, your gospel-centered life won't look like Pastor Warren or John Bunyan. It will look like your gospel-centered life. It is a life for showing the kingdom, and that's so important. Showing the kingdom and sharing Jesus becomes the underlying purpose for almost everything you do. And it's something that I really believe that God wants to do at, at Bethany Community Church in a big way. I believe that God wants us to come out of our shells. I believe that God wants us to begin to be evangelist in the way that we're evangelists. Not in the way John Bunyan was, or not in the way that Pastor Warren was, but in the way that we're evangelists and the way that we can reach one more for Jesus. It's also a new call to an other-centered life. Acts 28, verse 11, after three months we put out to sea that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and then on the following day we reached Petulio, and there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. I, I, I want you to listen I want you to listen to the relational dimensions of Paul because I didn't used to really think about Paul being relational. In fact, I, I, let, I don't know why, but I got in my head that he was kind of a curmudgeon who, who just, uh, just wanted to talk to God. But that's because I wasn't reading the Bible with my eyes wide open. When I began to read the Bible with my eyes wide open, I realized this is the most relational guy in the Bible. This guy is a fanatic about having friends and making new friends. And if you were his friend, he was, going to try to, he was going to try to get you to be a Christian, and he was going to, be pray, he was going to pray for you. I mean, that, you, you just were stuck if Paul was your friend. He was going to talk to you about Jesus, and he was going to pray for you, and he was going to care for you. He wasn't a curmudgeon at all. That was a wrong, false idea that I had. He said, though, and uh, there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. So we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. In the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged when he got to Rome. Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leader of the Jews. What I wanted you to see and why I read that is look at every other sentence is about relationships. Every other sentence is about him getting together with somebody. And when people weren't coming to get together with him, he was calling and making sure they, they came to him. Or he went to, he, he was a fanatic about connecting with other human beings. Now, you can be an introvert and follow this new calling I'm talking about today, but you can't be unsociable and self centered and disinterested in fellowship and relationships with other human beings. You can be an introvert, that's fine. You can be on the quiet side. You can even be shy. But you cannot be self-absorbed and obey and follow and enjoy the new calling of a gospel-centered life. The Apostle Paul's life is a study in relationships with his fellow human beings. Everywhere Paul went, he looked for people, both Christ followers and non-Christ followers, people that he could have conversations with, people that he could have meals with, people that he could have debates with and engagement with. You know, I love the story of the the great 5th century apostle 
St. Benedict. And, um, you know, uh, St. Benedict was a, uh, uh, a wealthy, came from a wealth, very wealthy family near Rome. And um, at that time, that was, uh, that was, he was born in like uh, 418 AD or something like that. And at that time, uh, Rome was starting to disintegrate. And the Germanic tribes were coming, and that we call them the Goths and the Visigoths, were coming and destroying Rome and Roman culture, and destroying religion, morality, ethics, bringing total confusion. These, uh, the, you've heard the phrase "barbarians at the gate." Well, that's that's referencing the Goths and the Visigoths who came to Rome, and and uh, uh, Benedict believed that. Education should lead us to God. So his parents sent him to university in Rome, and he was thinking he would go there and he would become closer to God through education. What he found was just the opposite. He found the Goths and Visigoths had taken over the community, and everybody was living in debauchery and partying and sensuality and mass confusion. And he, he, he was so troubled by what he saw, he said, there's no way that I can... I can become holy as God wants me to be holy in this environment. It's so bad and there's so, there's so much debauchery and there's so much immorality. And this, this society is so far gone. So, so Benedict went 40 miles north of Rome and, and found a cave. And there were a few monks out there and they said he could live in this cave. And he pl- stayed in this cave and prayed for three years. And prayed and sought God and prayed for his world, and prayed for his nation, and prayed for himself for three solid years. And, and people began to come, shepherds began to come, and other people began to come because they were sick of it too. And they began to seek him out and draw him out. And after three years, he finally came out of the cave, and he began to build communities of people. And he ended up building 12 communities and people today, if you read about Benedict, they will credit Benedict with saving civilization. Because these 12 communities, they rediscovered, they rediscovered the holiness of work, the holiness of industry, the holiness of, of, of prayer, and the, and the beauty of moral purity. And so the, 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 many people believe that Western civilization was saved because of Benedict, because he went to his cave, but he came out of his cave. And he came out of his cave, and he, he taught, and he related, and he loved, and he cared for people, and he taught them how to follow God. Maybe you're here today, and you need to come out of your cave because you're hiding from the world. And I understand why you'd hide from the world. It's a pretty, it's a pretty terrible place right now. It's a pretty sick place right now. The people are beating each other up in Portland, and they're they're having all this confusion and politically things are a mess. And sometimes I just want to pull the covers over my head. But God wants us to come out of our cave. And God wants us to build communities where people can find respite. And people can find love. And people can find holiness. And people can find purity. God, it, it, never, mind trying to, never mind trying to overwhelm the culture with our spirituality. Build a circle of spirituality. Build a community of spirituality. Build a family of spirituality. Build an ark. Build an ark. And invite your friends and your family and the people you love and the people you care about into the ark that you are building the way Noah built an ark. 
Thank you for that, amen. Another centered life, what is it? It's always noticing other people. Another centered life is always being concerned about other people. Another centered life has cultivated the habit of consistent engagement with other people. Another centered life is always connected with other people for their benefit. And I'm telling you, it's so rewarding. It's so rewarding. And I, I know I've made this point many times that my ministry to people on a personal level is not because I'm a pastor, but it's because I'm a Christian. And I, I had the experience this week, uh, this last week, I don't know, some of you may remember Brian LeBlanc, the veteran who had been so badly wounded in, uh, at uh, Mogadishu in Somalia and also uh, exposed to chemicals in Iraq. And he used to come here. You know, we found him, we found him in a, an apartment with uh, no food, no heat in, in uh, February with... Um, with, uh, he, had, he had aphasia, and if you know what aphasia is, but when he would try to talk, the words he meant to say wouldn't come out. So he couldn't even call for help. And uh, I got the news that he was dying. So I drove over to uh, uh, Webster one night to go visit him. And he's in a, it was in a nursing home, and I go in the room. He's totally comatose. And I just prayed a little prayer. I'm going to tell you what I prayed. Don't tell him, but I, I prayed God take him on. You know, because he's, he's had a rough life, man. And uh, got in my car, came back. So yesterday I'm driving around thinking, I wonder if Brian, I wonder, you know, if they had the funeral already. So I call Pam, his caretaker, and I get her on the phone. Uh, I said, how's Brian? So he's fine. <laughs> so, said, he's here, you want to talk to him? Like, like the next day, the nurses came and decided to start giving him antibiotics. And then his son came in to visit him, and when his son came in, he opened his eyes. And you, you think that's not fun to be involved in stuff like that? And Brian gets on the phone. He can barely talk, you know, but he probably is going to be at church here next Sunday. You know? And why, why would you not want to live such a magical life that I get to live? It's not because I'm a pastor. Don't think it's, oh, that's your job to go. No, it's my job to equip you to go. According to Scripture... It's my job to equip you to go. But I don't want to miss out on the fun. So I'm going to keep going. <laughs> You're going to hear a great story in a minute, a live story in a minute about that. Now I've noticed, you know, I'm going to be a little uh, confrontational right now. I've noticed that some of you hide behind the introvert defense. I'm an introvert. Well, I am too, by the way. I'm very introverted. I really don't like people at all. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I really like people. I'm just, I, I really do like people. I just am introvert. But I've noticed that we introverts usually have a public education. We have a job and a career, sometimes a very good career. We own or rent living spaces. And we're often married with kids. Now, all those activities I just mentioned require you talking to others and negotiating, uh, especially that last one. <laughs> so you got out of your shell enough to take care of your needs. I noticed that about we introverts. We get out of our shell in order 
to take care of us. Well, a gospel-centered life is when you get out of your shell to take care of others. And you consider their needs as important as yours. That's what I'm preaching about today. Finally, I would talk to you today about an intentional life. A call to an intention-centered life. I could have called it purpose-driven life. But I wanted to talk about the word intention. Because if you don't become intentional with becoming an ambassador for Christ, if you don't become an intentional evangelist, an intentional sharer of the kingdom, you, you will be limited in your success. I'm talking about being strategic. Understanding. By the way, sharing the kingdom of God, sharing the kingdom of God is not just preaching the gospel. If, if you are gospel-centered in your heart, if you take someone out to lunch today, you are showing them the kingdom of God. I'm serious. Serious. The, the first thing that's going to happen in the Bible teaches, in the book of Revelation, in the manifestation of the new kingdom, the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to have dinner. The, called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So sharing meals with people, if you are gospel-centered, now you can share meals with people, you're not gospel-centered, then it won't, be a, it won't be showing the kingdom. But if your heart is, I want to show them Jesus, and you serve them like, like Jesus would ser serve them, and you serve them the way Jesus is going to serve them, and you let that permeate your way of thinking, I mean, I mean you're, just, you're, you're, just going to, you're just going to minister to them at a level that you can't imagine, and... The Bible says, be ready to ask a reason for the hope that lies within you. And they're going to see how hopeful your family is. They're going to see how rich your family is. And they're going to say, what's, what's causing you to be so hopeful in this world where this is so hopeless? You won't be able to help evangelizing. You won't be able to stop yourself. So what do I mean by gospel-saturated, intentional life? I mean it's when you find your own where. Paul's. When Paul was in Jerusalem, that was his where. When Paul was in Rome, that was his where. So you find out where you're located. Paul preached. He worked. He made tents. He debated. He walked around. He prayed about the idolatry saw. That was all things he was doing where he was. He raised money for the poor. It just all depended where he was. You will also find your own who. Paul said in verse 28 here, or the Bible says, Luke said, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. When you are gospel-centered, you're looking around for who will listen. You're going from person to person, not rejecting people, not being mean-spirited to people, not cutting anybody off, but you're looking for who will listen. You know, let me tell you something. You say, well, a lot of people don't want to hear the gospel. And that's really true, of course. But you know that successful companies almost always sell their product to the minority and not the majority. And these are multi-billion dollar companies we're talking about. Only 9.4% only of people in the world own an iPhone. But I think it's a pretty successful venture, wouldn't you say? Only 1% of people in the world eat at McDonald's. Less than 1% of the people in the world drive a Mercedes. I have to throw this in there. In my research, I discovered 40% of the world listens to country music. <laughs> so, 
We're really, we're really successful, Scotty. <laughs> Most things in the world aren't as beloved as country music. I just tell you. But they're still hot, and they're mega successful. We don't have to win 100% or 50% of the people to Jesus in this community to, to, to make an incredible impact on this community. We just need to reach 2 or 3%. Don't, don't ever estimate the power of one person. Don't ever estimate the power of two. Don't ever estimate the power of three. Jesus spent the day with one woman at the well who went and told the entire community about him. Find your who that wants and needs Jesus. A human cannot do better than having Jesus as their primary role model and their primary and their savior. Amen? Find your own how. Paul did two things in our text. He shared the kingdom of God. He shared the person of Christ. I've already shared with you the definition of sharing the kingdom of God. That it's everything that you do that's caring and sharing and generous when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. To a gospel-saturated person, all these things that we do is so important. The, 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 I, I want to right now invite my wife to come up, Sherry. Everybody knows Sherry? And Sherry's going to tell a story. And I think this story illustrates so beautifully how we can become gospel-centered in our life, how we can become other people-centered, and how we can become intentional in living lives that share Christ with our world. Sherry, take it away. A long time ago in a faraway land, actually was in Florida. It was a long time ago because I had two children. One was four and one was two. And my husband had decided to um, do evangelistic speaking and he was traveling all over the place doing that. And we realized it was a rough thing to do with two little kids. And so I found myself by myself with um, people who I was associated with but really did not know well. And no longer being a pastor's wife or having a defined role or a defined ministry was something new for me. I wasn't happy about it. <laughs> um, because my kids were little and they were, we were living in a very hot place, every day I would take them to a little park in Port St. Lucie, Florida that had like a splash pad and we would go there and my kids would play and um, I thought I was going to do a traditional approach to being a person who brought the gospel to my community. And so my neighborhood, I thought I will start a Bible study for my friends and my neighbor, you know, these people I'm meeting in my neighborhood. And I went to my pastor and said, I'd like to start a Bible study. And 
for whatever reason, he said, nope, I don't want you to. Now, before you get too judgmental about that, I want to tell you pastors sometimes have reasons for those sorts of responses. And the only response I could have was, okay. So that door shut and I did the same thing I was doing every day, which was taking my kids to the park. Well, I would notice every day at this little splash pad that there would be this big car pull up and out of the car would get two little kids and a lady. And this lady would come every day and I would sit on one bench and she would sit on the other and our, two, our children would interact sometimes, not Jason as much because he scared the little girls, but because <laughs> Jay was always being like, and then we're going to kill them and murder, you know, and he was always, it was a little scarier than um, they were accustomed to, but Christy was kind and gentle and they played with her and one day Christy had fallen and I had never talked to this mom because she she seemed to purposely sit away from me but this day she sat at the opposite bench from me and Christy had fallen down and she came running over to me and told me she had a boo-boo and you know, I grabbed her and hugged her and we prayed. I prayed for her boo-boo and, you know, how you have to kiss it like 50 times. So I kissed the boo-boo and she went away. She was healed. And when she left, this lady said to me, do you really believe in that? And I said, yeah, I, I pray a lot. And we began to talk about prayer. Not God as much, but just this activity of prayer. And it opened a window for conversations between us. And so about four days a week, I became Jesus on a park bench. And Somewhere along the line, this mom began to share with me how, you know, she had made a mistake and um, gotten involved with somebody, and they eventually got married, and her her husband was very, very, very wealthy. If any of you lived in South Florida, you would know him. And, and he was controlling. And so she didn't have a car. She just had a limo and a limo driver. And she was deeply unhappy in her life. And she had figured out that money does not make you happy. And she had figured out that being the most beautiful woman in the room does not make you happy. And she had figured out that even being a mom of the most beautiful children in the room does not make you happy. And somewhere along the line, she realized that what her heart needed was truth. 
And I remember one day I said to her, truth comes in the form of a person for me. His name is Jesus. Would you like to accept him? And she did. And that began a Bible study for me that really, and I want to say this to you guys, she wasn't prepared for me to go get a Bible study from the bookstore. That's why you've got to hide God's word in your heart. You got to start knowing the word so that when you are in dialogue with people, you know what God's word says. And she and I began to talk about this revolutionary idea of living a life of freedom, even in a life situation where she felt captive. Now, there's a lot more to that story, but one day we were sitting there and her driver came over to her and told her that she had a phone call. And she went to him. That was before anybody had cell phones, long before that. And she went over to her car and then when she came back, she told me that she had gotten the news that her brother, they could not find her brother. And I don't know if you guys remember when a plane hit the bridge over the Potomac, but her brother had been on that bridge and they had not been able to find his body. And she and I lived through that. I was her only friend in the area. And so, um, you know, uh, that period of grief, I got to be a person in her life that cared about her and she could cry with and be human with. And our relationship, you know, was um, a blessing to me. She became a person who blessed my life and heard my heart. And spoke to a loneliness that I had. Phil and I moved to Jacksonville, Florida, somewhere within that year. And she, you know, of course, did not move to Jacksonville, Florida. And there were no cell phones and no Facebook and no Instagram. And so people, you know, while she probably could have afforded to call me, I couldn't afford to call her because we had something that you children have never heard of called long distance. <laughs> and it used to cost money to call people. So we did not have a lot of contact. But one day I got a phone call in the middle of the night that my brother had um, had a car accident and he had not survived. And she was the person that I called. And she blessed my family during that time. I found out later that her husband came to know Christ, that they served the Lord in a Lutheran church in South Florida that their children went to liberty. 
One of them is going to be a medical missionary. Sometimes a park bench is a big deal. Sometimes it's a restaurant. And let me tell you something. Your ego needs to be always murdered. Killed, destroyed. No one needs to say you have a role. If the gospel matters, the gospel matters because the gospel matters, not because you get noticed for delivering it. What you are willing to do on a park bench when nobody in the world knows about it, what you are willing to do in a hospital waiting room, what you are willing to do standing at the Blessing Barn home store register, what you are willing to do as a school teacher where you cannot mention the name of Jesus, but you can be Jesus. It matters. And the gospel is the thing that will radically change people's forever. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you for that powerful story. I want our, our prayer partners, we have prayer partners. I want you to come. I think it'd be a good day for a prayer of dedication. Saying, God, help me discover my park bench. Help me discover my person. My person that I can be Jesus to, that I can share, show the kingdom, share the Savior. So important. It's so reachable. And it really is. I, I don't know all the things that Pastor Olstein was talking about when he wrote the book, but it really is your best life now. To live a life of showing the kingdom and sharing Jesus, there's nothing better to do with your life. And it'll still, the results will still be around 100 years from now. Come and pray. Come receive communion. Let's enter response time.